Welcome to the Backstory Podcast. I'm your host, Kobe Cove. In this episode, we have an artist, producer, entrepreneur, global citizen, like changing lives all over the world. Someone who has just been such an energy force in this business as a person thinking forward and not backwards, Mr. Akon. What's going on, man? Amazing introduction, Cole. Hey, listen. <laughs> I always tell, I, I, it's funny, I told my daughter last night that I was, uh, my daughter's 16, so I said, hey, hey, I'm interviewing Akon, and, you know, I just started telling us, just telling her about you and all the things that you were doing when I first met you as a new artist in the business, and, you know, sometimes I do this with artists a lot, like, I'll, I don't see it in a moment, but then as we go along, I'll be like, oh, man, this person was, like, way ahead of their time, right? And sometimes that's a good thing, and sometimes it's a bad thing, but you, you <laughs> You know, you for sure were, were one that was ahead of the game from a business perspective, from, a, you know, just an artistic perspective. And even just the way you came out on the scene, like you just changed the game and then the entrepreneurial stuff. Like now everybody's an entrepreneur. But when you came out, even though you was on a major label, you were still an entrepreneur doing entrepreneurial stuff. And, you know, legacy stuff that you're doing back in your home country is amazing. So anyway, Mr. Akon's here. And on the Backstory Podcast, we really just kind of go through the career and just kind of dig a little bit. And I know I haven't interviewed you in years, but I always thought your story was really special, mainly because of your impact globally. Like you've had such a massive impact across the world. So let's talk a little bit about your childhood, because, you know, you were born in the States, but you spent a lot of time in your home country, your family's home country of Senegal. So you kind of lived back and forth. What was that like being in the United States and then? living in Senegal? Um, well, it was it was a complete culture shock. You know, like when I came to the States, I was in Senegal in a place called Kaula. And that's like a very rural village. Like you drive about a good three hours away from the city to get there. You know, there you really see cars at that time. It was more horses and chariots. You know, I was the the, 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 the ball. You, you could say the barefooted kid playing soccer in the sand then. You know what I mean? So, right. And then whenever I saw an airplane, it was almost like I thought it was a bird. That's how out of the spectrum that I was, you know, living in that area. But then when we came to the United States, man, it changed my life to see what I saw, you know, to come in that metal bird, which I <laughs> and fly in and you see these big, tall buildings larger than life and then cars and taxis all over the place and people just running around. And like it was it, like New York City was just, I mean, as chaotic as you know it to be. Imagine coming from a rural area where there's basically barely no civilization, no electric lights, no like no electricity, no running water, you know, to a place like New York overnight. So you can imagine my mind and how I went, man. But I always saw the most futuristic future for Africa just with that experience and I always said that one day I want to be able to get people the, the experience that I experienced. I want to be able to bring that back home. And that's what really I can say triggered a lot of things that I'm doing today. So when it came to the creative aspect of being an artist, was that something that you had since childhood or like when did that start manifesting you wanting to be an artist and performing? No, nah, but Kobe, it's interestingly enough, it was like music was never, ever a thought for me to use or be in any kind of career form. Like my dad was a jazz musician. That's what brought him to the United States. He used to play the djembe and he was uh, playing for Mr. Miss Catherine Dunham and, and Alvin Ailey at the time, doing a lot of the choreography musically, um, like just kind of composing all the music that they used to dance to. 
So ultimately, it was like, and then he bumped off to that to go do jazz. And he was doing with the, working with the World Saxophone Quartet. Later on, went to work with James Brown. So my pops was always in the music industry and on more in a jazz and, you know, style and type. And at that time, jazz wasn't something that a kid would gravitate to, when, especially when it comes to music, you know? For so sure. music was really no interest for me. Music just wasn't an interest. It was later that I got into so much trouble trying to fit in and trying to be a part of the society and what I thought society had to, you know, accept for me to be an American that got me caught up in the stuff that made me say, okay, cool. Uh, now that I'm fucked up my life practically and uh, I got a, a criminal record, got felonies and I can't get a normal nine to five job, I got to figure out something. And music became the, the only thing that I could think of that can keep me out of trouble and also be in a position where I'm doing something I love to do. So around your teenage years, you well, you first of all, well, the one place to come to in America to be in the New York City area and come from a rural uh, countryside, right. that's insane, right? Like I could I couldn't imagine just absorbing that, but also like the I don't give a f culture of that part of the country, and then right. it, was, it was like a little bit of a language. You didn't you had to learn the language too, right? Yeah, yeah. It was funny because first of all, I was mad black. You know, you know, Kobe, y'all was the ones with the good hair, light skinned niggas getting all the girls at the time. We were struggling over there, boy. It wasn't was happening. So right. the only thing I had to my advantage was the fact that I didn't speak great English because I didn't hear much of what was being said, but I knew I was being made fun of, right? But mm -hmm. the interesting part about it is it, I got to the point where I spoke, spoke a little bit better English, but I spoke with such a heavy accent that that became the target for every time it was get, I was getting joned on. So, and me, I wasn't really used to that because, you know, Africa's more family friendly, friend friendly. So people don't really go at each other like that. It was always a ways of encouragement that we kind of displayed to each other. Whereas in America, it was totally opposite. They try to make you feel bad to, to kind of yeah. step above you. You know what I mean? So, and I just, so it got, I got, I got, like it was something I had to really get used to. And I would just get really angry when that happened. So I found myself always fighting. Like every time somebody said something, crazy about me. I just hook off. And before you know it, I was known as the nigga that was always fighting every time somebody joined on him to the point where right. every time a new kid came to school, they'd be like, yo, I dare you to say something about this nigga right here. Right. So, right. 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 But it also gave me a little bit of security because that, that, that you could say that energy in that neighborhood or the, the group of people that was known to be tough in the neighborhood would be like, okay, y'all can fuck with him. You know, right. he, he like, you know, so it was like it was almost like me, me protecting my, my emotions kind of displayed a, a, a level of security to the point where they was like, OK, he ain't no punk, so he can roll with us. And then that's what got me caught up in that crowd that had me thinking distortedly to think that, OK, the only way to get rich was to do something illegal because that's all right. they knew. Right. You know what I mean? So it was it was very interesting. But what ultimately what ended up happening was I ended up learning English. And I said to myself that when I do learn English. I want to learn to the point where there's no accent visible so where they couldn't tell if I was from Africa or not. And that's when I started being really, you know, I kind of honed in and just focused on learning English without no accent and understanding the slangs and all this other stuff. I was reading that your parents left you in the New York City area and went to Atlanta while you were in high school and you had to pretty much fend for yourself. Right. So my dad, you know, like I told you, he was always traveling you know, super successful musician from a jazz standpoint, but he got offered a job to go to University of Miami to take over their cultural exchange program. And mm -hmm. then he ended up doing in, in Orlando as well. But that same concept followed him as we went to New Jersey. Me and my older brother, Muhammad, was living in New Jersey 
at the time. And I was going to Dickinson High School. So he got offered a job at Clark Atlanta University, you know, to handle the same thing over there. So he ended up taking the job. But he said, listen, if I take it, you guys got two options. You can come with me to Atlanta or you can stay here and finish out your last years of high school which I got to be responsible to do it. So obviously me and my brother was like, man, we stayed here. Like, we get this whole house to ourselves. Uh, it, was, it was on and popping. But the beauty of it is it was it was a gift and a curse, but more of a gift because it did. It definitely allowed us to understand the responsibilities it would have took to be able to just manage your own household, even though it was just me and him and we had all this freedom. It only opened the doors for more you can say bullshit at the end of the day, but it was that bullshit that we experienced that allowed us to shape up and get our act together, though, really. So you got jammed up. You uh, were involved in cars and uh, all kind of stuff, and you end up in jail. And so you get out of jail. Is this when it starts to hit you that I need to make records or make music when you get out? Well, actually, that concept came while I was inside. When, and that was shortly after we, just, you know, we left. I got kicked out of Dickinson, didn't end up graduating to get my diploma there. So I ended up I'm closing out at Bayonne High School. But shortly after, I went to Atlanta. And then mm-hmm. when I got to Atlanta, that's where it was a little easier to hustle because Atlanta was a little slower at that time. You know, the right. South was fast when it come to hustles as the East Coast was. You know, it's a hustle and bustle in the East Coast. Where in the South, everybody's more relaxed. The economy was a lot more stable property and, and way of living was a lot cheaper. So the extent to go into what you had to go to to pay your monthly bills wasn't that crazy in the South. But when we went there, it was almost like I took the car hustle and brought it to the South, you know? So in a, in a mix of me getting in there, obviously successful for the last four or five years, doing it really, really, I mean, on a huge level. But then I was, because of that success, at the same time, it also put the highlight on me as well, too. So I ended up getting popped. But when I was in jail, I had a, 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 a cellmate older guy, you know, he was actually on his way to death row and he was being, he was actually being, you know, a, a transfer through the, the, the Fulton County facility. I'm sorry, DeKalb County. So while we sitting there sharing sales, you know, he was saying to himself, man, he said, man, as much as, uh, you know, I see you out here singing and writing songs all the time. If you just took all that energy and you harnessed it into the music business, there's no way you cannot be successful. It right. takes a lot more energy, strength and knowledge to get away with anything illegal, you know what I mean? So if you got, if you were successful doing anything illegal, you'll be five, ten times more successful doing something legit. And then I thought about that, man. I was like, you know what? He's right. You know, so then I'm thinking about all the times where I was going through this, you know, these issues. And because I was in the illegal, you know, business at the time, there was nobody I could really talk to about just the things that I was going through, my problems and all that. So I used to just write songs about it. And ironically enough, as I was making so much money, I really didn't know how to move the money around. And I didn't know how to embezzle it to the point where I could be clear of all IRS taxes or rate off from the police. So I ended up, you know, investing in recording studios in Atlanta. I had three recording studios and I would just let everybody just use it for free. So it looked as busy as possible so I could justify where my money was coming from. But during late nights, I would go in and I would write about things that I was going through. And ultimately, that happened for years, and then that, that habit followed me in jail. So when I got locked up, naturally, I wrote about being locked up. And I was singing about, you know, I was singing out loud in the pod, and before you know it, the whole pod was singing the song with me every time one of the, you know, the officers would walk by, you know. And then he said, and the OG was like, man, see, this is what I'm talking about, man. Look at this. You know? Like, people are really loving what you do. You need to really think that twice. So I said, you know what? You're right. The following week, I said, okay, this is what I'm going to do. I wrote out a a 10-year list of what I wanted to do when I got out. It was like a plan, 10-year plan. 
And in that in that whole process, I want to start my own record company. I want to be able to put out records. I want to write and produce for other artists. And finally, I want to one day be able to work with Michael Jackson. But this was like at the last of my plans in the last 10 years. I said, oh, listen, I, I know I might not be able to accomplish it, but I'm going to aim for the stars. And as long as I reach the sky, that's high enough for me, right? right. So clearly what ended up happening was I started Convict Music while I was in jail. And then when I got out, I was already ready, fully incorporated to move forward. And that's how that's really what started this whole thing. But then when I got out, I started cashing in all the favors that I dished out when I wasn't locked up. And all the people that utilized my recording studios, half of them niggas got, you know, got record deals through that. And I never paid. I never charged. I never, you know, asked them for any kind of favors. But this time I really needed it. So right. I started. Right. phone calls to everybody that utilized my favors or utilized my studio and I just start calling those favors. Before you know it, I had them all either on my record or I was on their records. And before, <laughs> and you know, Kobe, it was one point where you couldn't turn on a record without hearing Akon. I was on That's every, true. like these were all favors I was cashing in at that time. You know? So when you, when you dropped Locked Up, did you have an idea, any idea how big that song was going to be and how impactful for the rest of your life, that song was going to be when it came out? Actually, that's, that was the thing. Like, in the beginning, I was super discouraged. Like, I was, I didn't, I have no idea. I was just praying that this thing goes the way we expected it to go. But unfortunately, it didn't go that way. You know, when we first put the record out, it just wasn't getting no attraction whatsoever. And right. me, Steve Rifkin, and Gabby, and Cleve, and Ike, we sat down and we said, man, we got to figure out a way to get this record going. And then that's when I was like, man, why we, why we can't just get a feature on it? And we're thinking about all the people we're going to get on with. It's going to be Beanie Siegel. Uh, so we're reaching out to all these people. And at the time, I wasn't nobody. Nobody knew who right. I was. Like, right, right. You know, a lot of people declined the offer. They were like, nah, I'm good. You know what I'm saying? Oh, they overcharged me to the point where my budget couldn't even cover it. And then I remember listening to uh, an interview on a station in New York. And it was talking about Styles P and how he's locked up and this, that, and the other. And then I was like, man. You know what? I know D from DNY Rough Rider. So I reached out to him and I said, listen, I need to get a hold of Styles P to get him on his record. He currently locked up. It's fit everything that we're doing. And he made the connection, called Steve Rifkin, everybody we got in um, contact with Styles. And I talked to him over the phone while he was in jail. He's like, man, I would love to do this record. This record is one of the biggest records in here right now. And we was we was like, wait a minute, how is this record so big in, in jail, but nobody know about it outside? I know, you know what I'm saying? Yeah. It was like one of the things, but then it gave us the idea because when I went to Rikers Island, I met with the, uh, well, at the time he was the warden there, and he was like, man, you know, I, I would love for somebody like you to come out. I've seen your record. I know you have, you've been, you had some trouble with the law, but I see how you brought your, you know, your life back in order. You can speak to some of these kids, you know, perhaps even perform this record for them and, you know, see what comes out of it. And I was like, man, I would love to do that. So we ended up going to Rikers and, and singing the song and performing it live for the inmates there had a nice little, you know, uh, Q&A afterwards. You know, they, I spoke about my experience. We went back and forth. And he was like, man, this this was so successful. I want to take you to, you know, let's do Connecticut. Let's do Philly. Let's do all these other facilities that I also control. And we ended up making it like a small, you know, penitentiary jailhouse tour for like, for like eight to ten locations. And by the time we got off of that, Kobe, the craziest thing happened because all the inmates was calling the radio stations from jail to request a song. Yeah. And that's what yeah. drill, that's what drove the record to start getting played, you know, but yeah. it didn't happen until we got Styles P on that record. When Styles got on the record, the shit just exploded. Yeah. So you, so you come out, you got that song and then you get, then you got to deal with Steve Rifkin, who is 
the Rifkin family is legendary, but Steve Rifkin is the mastermind behind Wu Tang and that whole monster of a of a group and solo artists yeah. and then Mob Deep. Did you understand the equity you were getting when you connected with him? And did you know who you were getting with? And and how did you, you get know, with him? Yeah, so I honestly I didn't know what I was getting into when I started with Steve. Because I I, I bid it on Steve. I didn't know what he was attached to. I had no idea he had right. anything to do with Wu-Tang or Mob Deep or Fat Joe or you know Dead Prayers. Like these were all the hottest underground acts at that time. Yeah. You know, it was interesting because a friend of mine. Uh, named Kenny Burns uh, was the one that took it to a guy named Alec. I mean, um, Bernard Alexander. I'm sorry, no, Bernard Alexander. Divine connected with Bernard Alexander. Bernard took it to Kenny Burns, and then Kenny Burns took it to Steve Rifkin, right? So then when, when Steve heard it, he came directly to our house. At the time, we was living in Fourth Ward in Atlanta, and we was like literally in the middle of the hood, but we was in this little section where there was like million dollars houses in the in the in the, in the hood with gates, yep. and we was right there in that little section. We was like. In that little area, I don't know. It was, I think it was being uh, regentrified at the time, but we was in one of those 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 high 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 you know houses, whatever the case was. So Steve came, and as he was pulling up into my house, I looked outside and just saw you know like security like type niggas with these <laughs> you know earpieces, and I see this white man walking. Up. I ran out the back door and dapped out. I thought the fans were coming after me. It was no, the funniest man. thing, man. So. <laughs> Steve was like, you know, where is it? Devon was like, man, he was just right here. I don't know what happened. They ended up fight, going all the way through the park and they ended up catching me there. Devon was like, nigga, this is not the Fed, man. This is right. this is Steve Rifkin. Got his, I was right. like, oh, I was so embarrassed. Steve was like, man, this is okay. So Steve told me straight up, he said, listen, I, you know, I used to be at Sony. I had a, 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 you know, a company named Loud. And when we moved on, I started something brand new now called SRC, Street Records Corporation. And I want to sign you. And at the time, he had David Banner. And he was yep. telling me how, you know, he's creating a whole new roster and how he would like me to be a part of it. He said, listen, I'm going to tell you right now, I'm not a major record company. I'm just distributed by a major. And I know you got a few offers because at the time we had a few offers from other people, but they never really came to see me. They just wanted to fly me out and I come to the you know building and look. But it was the fact that he came to my neighborhood, came and saw me like it was just he just felt so it was just so sincere. And he said he told me straight up. I don't have a lot of money. I'm going to be able to give you the budget that you're looking for. But one thing I will do is make sure you got an opportunity to make a lot of fucking money. And I'm going to fight for you to the end. So after me and I had that conversation, I said, D, I think we're going to go with Steve. He's like, you sure? I said, yeah, I think we're going to go with Steve. Rifkin. So I ended up going with him. I'm, I'm happy I did. Because one yeah. thing about Steve, he definitely fought for me in that building. Like every yeah. time, literally every time they denied something, Steve would go, what the fuck? That's yeah. a lot <laughs> Yo, they did not want to hear his mouth. They would just do it just to keep Steve quiet. You know what I'm saying? So I was happy, man. You did that for Wu-Tang, though. The whole Wu-Tang would not be who they are today if that white man didn't stand up for them in in that world because a lot of people didn't understand what they were doing, and he fought for them. He definitely fought for them. He definitely did, man. So you you put out your first album, uh, does very well, locked up, huge song, and then you go to your second album, which was a monster album. So now you're like that artist that goes into your your sophomore album and then a sophomore album is is like 70% of the time sophomore album is a dud for most artists right did you feel any pressure or you were just like no nah, i got this i'm a step no nah, because see i think i think what also helped me out a lot was the fact that i was ignorant to a lot of the myths ignorant to the music business ignorant to all the things that came with it and me the music was passion driven so 
when I came into it, everything was so sincere. The stories were sincere. The lifestyle was sincere. The relationships I was making in the process was all real. So it didn't, I don't, I don't think, I, I probably was immune to a lot of the industry rules and myths that came with it because when I entered, I came with none of those attached to me. You know, so come the sophomore album, I was so excited that the first album was so successful. I was determined to make an album in my mind better than the first one. So my audience that supported me couldn't be happy that they did support me because I knew how hard it was for people to come and say, yo, Khan is the next truth or this is a new African kid that's dope. And they had to convince people that I was hot. So I didn't want that second album to be something that they had to convince. I wanted them to be like, I told y'all, I told y'all, you know what I'm saying? And it was one of them kind of, it, it was, it was, it was, it was driven by uh, just so many, you know, you could say declines. Cause I remember divine going into so many labels trying to get me a deal. And he would come back and be like, I was like, how did it go? He'd be like, Oh no, everything was good. Everything was good. Knowing that they all declined, but he never wanted me to feel discouraged. You know what I'm saying? Right. right. Yeah. So w- what was it like for you around your first and second album to go back to Senegal and to see how your home country embraced your music and how they reacted to you as an artist? What was that like? No, that man, I ain't gonna lie, Kobe. That was the first time I actually, as a man, cried out of, uh, you know, happiness because it was like the Beatles came into town. Like it was that kind of mania. From the moment my plane dropped on that tarmac, it was like 50, 60,000 people at the airport. Like I'd, I'd never seen it. It was a parade from the airport to my hotel, from the hotel to the venue, to the venue back to the hotel, to the hotel back to the airport. It, was, it wasn't a moment that it wasn't a large crowd outside waiting on me. Like it was all, it, it was just crazy. It was impossible. And then that's when I realized, damn, this is how Michael Jackson lived. Like you couldn't walk down the street. I finally was able to experience that. And thanks, thanks that I did experience that at home though, in Africa. Well, and speaking of Michael Jackson, again, it was on your list. You ended right. up working with him and you were one of his friends in his last few years. What yeah. was that like? Just A, how did you get with Michael Jackson? And B, what was it like being a friend to Michael Jackson? Man, it all of this was just so surreal. I couldn't even see, I couldn't see none of this in my future when I was in that cell. Can you imagine? Like, but I think I it, was that, it was that moment when I thought I would never ever coming out to the point where I was like, God, I promise you, if you bless me, I won't steal a piece of bubble gum. I'm gonna change my life, I'm gonna help people, I'm gonna do everything in my life to make you smile upon me on every move that I'm making. And I, I always kept that word. I try to stay honest. I try to see, keep my heart clean. I make sure that everybody that ever was attached to me in any kind of way was upgraded, but just by just by being next to me, because I would always try to bring, you know, tools and things around them to help, you know, take their life to a next level. Like I always want everybody to experience a better version of themselves after meeting with me or doing business with me. So it was one of them things where, when I met Michael Jackson, and that was like my childhood dream, like my last goal in my whole 10-year plan, and to achieve that in five, half the time that I thought I would achieve it, I knew there was way, way bigger things that had that God had in store for me. But Mike was just, man, I wish the world had experienced Michael Jackson the way I was able to experience him as a person. I mean, this dude was one of the most amazing people you ever met in your life. Soup, I mean, just, just pure heart, like just... Is pure, like the most giving. I mean, he just, it's hard to even explain it. But so, and then to watch how the media created this whole narrative around him and took his kindness just to utilize that to work it against him and, and, and try to destroy his legacy was just heartbroken, man, but breaking, man. But he was just the most, in, like, the most incredible person you would have ever met, man. I promise you. 
your work be starting something from Thriller from the 25th anniversary uh, yeah. album. And when are we starting something is like, again, here you are. That must have been <laughs> just like, you talking to me? Is it me? No. You asking me to do this? No, like that was the funniest thing because he, me and him at the time, we had mutual attorneys, like both of our attorneys represented each other. And at the time, mm-hmm. I didn't know my attorney represented Mike. And he called me. He was like, look, I got somebody on the phone. I want to speak to you. I figured it'd be easy for me to just let you guys connect directly. So, you know, I said, who is it? He said, it's a surprise. I said, who? He said, I said, bro, I'm not getting on the phone until you tell me who it is. Like, he said, it's Michael Jackson. I hung up on him. I said, like, excuse me. <laughs> he playing. <laughs> like, I hung up on him. Because he was, he was, he was always, he, he joked a lot, around a lot, too. So then he called me back again. And in the background, I hear somebody laughing, like, with a small, tiny voice. And I was like, see, this is, man, you're playing way too much. And I was like, who was on the phone? And Mike was like, it's me. It's me. I said, me who? He said, it's me, Michael Jackson. I hung the phone up again. <laughs> I said, man, if y'all start playing on my phone, then I go, he calls you back third time. He said, bro, you think I'm going to keep calling you back three times on a joke? You know, I always admit to the prank the first time. And I was like, right. you kidding me? He said, listen, Mike said, listen, I've been looking all over for you. I love the work that you've done, you know, with your artists, what you're doing with Lady Gaga and T-Pain. I'm such a huge fan of T-Pain as well. He told me, like, everything about me. Like, I was so shocked. That he did his full research. He taught. He told me things about myself that I forgot even existed, right? And mm-hmm. I, I, I knew everything about Michael Jackson. So you know, he, you know, he flew me out to Vegas, and from there we were just man, we was together for almost two years. Like you know, outside of me having to fly out to go do shows or whatever. But whenever I came back, I go meet him in Vegas. We go with the house. We work on some records. We go do you know just fun things and just told stories. Like the stories. I mean, from the Motown days all the way to his just you know his, his peak days and. I mean, whew, you learn so much from him. And then from the business level, he was a different monster when it comes to business. Like right. he was the epitome of what made me understand how important it is to be an entrepreneur in the music business. The music, even though it's a music business that we all understand, the word business comes last, but that's what you put first. Because once you understand the business of music, then everything changes for you. You know? Well, People, and, and the publishing thing, he understood publishing and, and that's... That's the holy Better grail right there. Right. Like, he owned 50% of Sony's publishing. Like, these are the right. biggest copyrights yeah. in the world, all the way down from yeah. Elvis to the Beatles to, like, he had, man, this guy was, he was different. So you were also recruiting artists to be up under you. And so Lady Gaga, talk a little bit about that. Because, I, I mean, we, we all know a little bit of her story. And, you know, she went right. to Def Jam and it, it didn't work out. And and then they leveraged you, kind of you kind of leveraged your self to get her more airplay and more exposure talk a little bit about that you know with, with the gaga play honestly i always gave a majority of that credit to jimmy iv you mm-hmm. know i had just closed my record company over at interscope at the time closed my label deal and kobe O'Donnell was my star at that time and as we were going through these records you know, he wanted me to do records for the Pussycat Dolls at the time. So I was working on records with the Pussycat Dolls. And I caught this crazy block because I was just so excited that I closed this big deal. And I couldn't come up with no ideas. And at the time, I had just signed a producer out of Morocco named Red One. You know, me and him in the studio recording. And I couldn't come up with nothing. I was like, I need to find some motivation. So he was like, I got, I know another writer you can bounce back and forth with. You know, he reached out to her and in comes walking in Lady Gaga. You know what I'm right. saying? Right. All gold leotards, like looking like she's from the 80s. Mind you, this was always her. This was never something that was created on her. This was her already. 
right? So off top, I'm like, wow. So we're writing this record, and we write the record. She goes in to demo it out, and as she's demoing out this record, I'm like, man, this chick is a star. Like, wow. So at that point, I'm trying to figure out who I'm assigned to do this, and I called Jimmy Iovine immediately. I said, yo, Jimmy, I think I found the next artist that I want to put on my label. He said, who? I said, Lady Gaga. He said, Lady Gaga, you know she's already part of our roster. I said, I know. That's what she said. So I need that on my label, though. I want to sign her. Right, you know? right, right. And he said, yeah, you know, because she's very different. You know, we're having, and, you know, it's been kind of tough trying to figure out a direction for us. Jimmy, just please leave it with me. Give us 30 days and we'll give you an album. I promise you that you're going to love. And sure enough, within 30 days, man, we put together the most amazing album with this girl. And Jimmy was like, okay, now I'm going to throw you this bone. You just know you owe me one. And I said, no, nah, when I'm done with this girl, you're going to owe me one. <laughs> right, 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 right. A big one, yeah. What I loved about Jimmy was that he believed in me. Like, he believed in me to say, you know what? Uh, even though she's ours, I'm going to give her to you and let you move. Because he also allowed mm-hmm. me to and reshape a lot of other artists in that building too. Like we, at that same time, we had brought back Bone Thugs and Harmony. You know, I did a crazy record for them called I Tried that kind of helped them push back. And then Gwen Stefani was, didn't have a right, the, the perfect single at the time. So he locked me in with Gwen Stefani and took over that project, did the song Sweet Escape, which ended up being her whole tour and the name of her album and pushed her forward. And then, you know, all that connected me with Snoop and you know, Eminem, like he really, I would say, paved the way for me to take my career from zero to 50. And him being attached to it and adding that extra spark took me from 50 to 100. You know what I mean? Yeah. And then you found T-Pain, who ends up being a monster. Talk a little bit about that. T-Pain was the most interesting story because at the time, this was just all, this was before I even had my label. You know, T-Pain was the first artist actually that I ever signed under Convict Music. And ultimately what ended up happening was I was just in Atlanta just chilling and then my little brother Boo came to me. He said, yo, man, I didn't know you really had another mixtape. You know, and I was like, what are you talking about? He said, man, I'm going to play you something. He played me this record. It was a rendition of Locked Up, but it was called I'm Fucked Up. And it was T-Pain on there singing it. And I'm like, damn, that nigga sound just like me for real. Boo said, nah, this nigga is you on steroids, Con. You got to meet him. He's, he's, he's out he's out in um, Tallahassee. Call him and you just meet him. I think once y'all connect, it's going to be instant. So Boo was the one that put that play together. I was like, Khan, trust me, you need to sign this nigga. Don't let him go because he's going right. to eventually come. You, you, you will want him on our team. You don't want him to be competing with us. Like, he's too close right. to the, the brand. And I was like, you know mm-hmm. what, you're right. But then when I met him, like, we clicked instantly. Like, to this day, he's like, my little brother, I love this little nigga, right? But he was so talented. I mean, just and so humble. You know, at the time, his dad was doing all of his music. His dad was, you know, in a position where he blessed us to take over you know, from where he left off and which I always, you know, always thanked his father for that. And, and you know, cause he didn't have to do that either. And believe, believe it or not, man, it was like, boom, we had to figure out where to go from here. And then that's when we connected with uh, TJ's DJs at the time where he was like the, the guy that was just, he had the email blast of, of the century. He just, <laughs> he get, he get records to these DJs, they get on it. And then he was very aggressive at the time too. And he believed in the project more than any of us. So he helped us get the single off, which was the I'm Sprung record. And then it just from there was no turning back, man. T Pain became another legend. A lot of people don't know this about you. Like they they know you as an artist, but they don't know behind the scenes you had all this connection. And you actually worked on Whitney Houston's final album as well. So what was that like? How did you connect with Whitney? That that was probably the most scariest thing because we had just left, I mean, we had just lost Michael Jackson. And then when I look back and I was like, man, it's Whitney Houston right after that. And then I'm like, man, I was I was the last person to work on both of those records. Like it was almost like 
it was just, I don't know, it's, it's, it's on a spiritual yeah. level, it was just a little deep. But Whitney, actually, I, um, me and Whitney was connected through just my, 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 my travels of just being a writer and a producer. And they really reached out and was like, listen, I need some records for you because I had just finished working out, working records for Lionel Richie at that time. And they were super, super happy. And then that's when L.A. Reid was like, man, I need to get you in with Whitney. You know what I mean? And he made the connection, pulled all that together. And then Clive Davis at the time, you know, Whitney, that's, his, that's our baby. And Clive really loved what we were doing and was like, man, I just need to make sure that, you know, just we not close this album before you jump on this record with her. And once me and Whitney connected, it was like, oh, shit, nigga, you from Jersey? What? I was like, it's over. Like, me and her connected like we were brother and sister. But that's when I realized, yo, the Whitney that the world know compared to the Whitney that I know, you know, Kobe, it's not the same. You start thinking about, wait a minute, who was really, you know, the one that was the the, the influencer? Was it Bobby Brown or was it Whitney? Right, right. G, like she was a they, they did a great job like camouflaging her, but remember, it was no internet, no social media, right, so they painted right. a picture of her. But I learned when I watched B, the Bobby Brown reality show that was on Bravo, uh, uh, I think it was being Bobby Brown. That's when I was like, Oh, that's the other side of Whitney. Like, oh, okay, <laughs> yes, yeah, she's she from Newark. I mean, my wife is from Newark, so I know all about Newark, New Jersey. Like, it's a whole nother, it's a different. It's a different animal of, of, of folk. But anyway, so you, so you had a chance to work with all these great people. But with all your success, you have been given back to Africa. And so one of the things you were doing was you talked about just the very rural area where you lived in Senegal and how one of your ideas was to bring electricity to African countries. Talk a little bit about that program you created, which I think was just so amazing from a technology standpoint, but also just life-changing for people in uh, with very humble uh, backgrounds in these countries. Yeah, now that was, that's, that's actually a very, I'm, I'm glad you asked that question because when I first came to America, that's when I realized that Africa got the shorter end of the state. And then when I got famous and was traveling the world, I, it, it confirmed it, right? And I see how Africa is the richest continent in the world, but yet has the biggest challenges. And it's always because Africa was never able to manage their own resources. So I said Mm -hmm. to myself, I want to be someone that can allow the country to grow on its own, but utilizing the population, but they need resources. So I remember doing a concert when Sierra Leone, we got to Sierra Leone, we are doing this concert. I mean, sold out stadium, 75,000 people. Right as we got into the third song, going into ghetto, the lights cut off. Wow. There was no electricity. So we like, you know, everybody's calm. We're thinking the lights, you know, gonna come back on. They're gonna turn it back on in the next five minutes, ten minutes. It never comes back on. Huge riot breaks out. People go crazy. They spent I mean, they life savings in some areas just to get to the concert, right? And it was the most saddest experience. And I said, man, we gotta fix this electricity issue. So I go back to my hometown and I'm trying to figure out ways to actually do it. And that really motivated me because I realized that. From a political standpoint, you would have to deal with oil and gas with the government. But if you deal with solar, you don't have to deal with no resource outside of a solar plant. So ultimately, what ended up happening was we decided to go more solar. But it started off as a philanthropic you know, initiative. I wanted to go to all the rural areas like the area where I grew up in Kola, you know, just provide basic electricity for people in their huts and their homes. And within the first two years, we supplied probably over two to 300,000 homes with electricity. Just me raising money you know, from concerts and putting that 
towards, you know, you know, this, this initiative. But then what I realized as well was as we were doing this, governments were now reaching out to me to help, you know, fix the, the, the energy poverty in their area. So, you know, before you know it, meet with the energy minister and then we would cut contracts to be able to just electrify the whole city. So then I started a company which was for profit that allowed me to have my own utility company in Africa that would just provide electricity to countries. And now currently we're in 16 countries providing electricity in Africa. But then, yeah, I mean, it was on a whole other, like this is something I never thought about when I was doing music at all. Like it just popped up on me because of the need. We started bringing the business to America and then we created Akon Lighting, which is here in America. And what we're doing here, and we are partnered with the Biden Energy, the Clean Energy Program that Biden has, the only minority that's doing it on utility scale under that program. And what we're doing is we're taking coal plants and we recommissioning the coal plants into renewable energy. So that became another success story, which we're about to start going public. We started a fund called the Black Sunrise Fund. It's going to allow all my peers to actually, you know, be able to invest in energy itself. Because right now, Kobe, you make a million dollars and you say, OK, I want to invest in, let's say, Georgia Power. They're going to cut you out. They won't let you go in. You know, you know that. Right. That yes, yeah, it's, it's all centralized, and I mean, it's locked in. Like, there's no way. Texas and Arizona is the only two places where you can actually create a utility company and work hand in hand with the energy companies there. So, but we wanted to do it to where you got all the high network individuals, it's African or brown, that you know, that minority basically that want to invest in something like that, where you know it's tangible income that'll come periodically for generations. We want to open up the Black Sunrise Fund for people to be able to invest in energy here in America. That's amazing, man. I mean, what a gift God gave you uh, a journey. I mean, that's just we I, we really need the Acom movie seriously or mini series to like oh, we work on all this. <laughs> we got we got to see all this, man. This is a they don't know this about you, man. They just know that you made records. They don't understand right. all this stuff. Like I knew this from you when I first met you. We had some great conversations, yeah. and you had my mind blown. Like when I first met you, the stuff you was telling me about what you were working on or the things. And I was just I, I couldn't comprehend it like most people. But yeah. you were so focused. I was like, whatever this brother's going to do, he going he going <laughs> to do it. Like, there's no way. And then all that entrepreneurial stuff, man. And even now with the cryptocurrency and the NFTs and all that stuff, like you was on that stuff before. Now, everybody else is like coming to the party. Yeah. The digital stuff. I was I always believed in digital because. Me coming from Africa in that environment to see New York City already told me that that future that everybody took for granted, I saw what that looked like another hundred years from now. So even when my, when my when I was doing my records, while everybody was focused on selling albums and singles, I focused on ringtones because I know that digital side of it was going to be what, the, what tomorrow was going to be actually thirsting for. So, And I looked at the numbers. I mean, you're you selling a single, you know what I mean, for... A dollar ninety nine at the time, which was like th- like three and a half minutes, maybe four minutes long for a dollar ninety nine, and then you got ringtones that would ring for literally ten seconds for four ninety nine. Like, like it didn't make no sense. I said, man, we need to be selling ringtones, and that's where I put all my focus in. I never gave up or sold out my digital rights. I kept on to them, and I just sold sing ringtones. Before you know it, we end up making the Guinness Book of World Records for most ringtones sold ever. You know, so it was like. That's when we realized, okay, the future of technology is something that I need to keep my eye on and try to stay ahead of it. Because if I can see it before it happens, then my future is secure. Because my biggest wow. fear always has been going back to that environment and not or being homeless. Like, I, I just, I can't, that's my biggest fear, losing it all and going back to where I started. So we're about to wrap up uh, the interview, man. And I just want to appreciate the you taking the time. No, uh, you're now coming back as an artist now. Like you now, like you took a little bit of a break. Tell us a little bit about what's about to happen as an art as a as an artist 
for you now. So, yeah, I, I kind of took the break. And when I went to uh, South Africa for the World Cup, we was doing this huge campaign for the World Cup. At the time, I was doing the, um, the Confidence Foundation and Pepsi came on board and supported us. And then in return, we supported them for a crazy campaign for the World Cup with O Africa. And then it made me say, I want to stay in Africa a little longer. You know, I got time. I made some nice investments. Let me figure out what my future and my legacy was going to be. And that's when all the, the other stuff came. But I took a trip to Nigeria. And while I was in Nigeria, I saw this vibrant music scene. But it was like more, you know, traditional. But everybody was hot. But it was just too traditional to make it outside of Nigeria. Right. You know, so I was like, man, what if we add like real instruments and we took it more pop? And we got, you know, somebody that understood the vibe and the, and the swag. And then we just kind of slowly blow this concept out the water. And that's when I ran into this little young kid and he had a, a manager by the name of Banky W. And me and the manager connected. And I was like, yo, man, we need to, you know, let's sign this kid and let's take him to the next level, you know. And that kid ended up being Wiz Kid, right? Yeah, yeah. Ultimately, what ended up happening was when we saw that energy there, that was something that I said, okay, we have to build this out. Like, because I'm African, so I know what that is. So, but the question, the, the craziest part about it was when we were playing it um, domestically, everybody at that time thought it was reggae music. So I would go right. labels, trying to get deals and trying to sign these kids and get them going. They, they really didn't understand it. And I you know to their credit, it was a little early. And, and, and me, I was, I would always see things ahead of time. Right. So we stayed in Nigeria. We, we, we kind of matured the sound. It spilled over into the UK. And the next thing you know, Afropop now is global, right? So, but within that process, you know, WizKid was founded through that process. David O was founded through that process. P-Square, which is a two twin group guys that we had called Chop My Money, was founded through that process. I mean, the Bonge. I mean, you, yeah, like, <laughs> you know, now today, it's a, it's a whole new genre because they've actually took the American hip-hop culture and fused it into Afrobeat. So when you see the vibe, the chains, the flow, you know, the lifestyle of the cars and the living, these are things that was happening in, in certain parts of Africa that people never knew existed. And let's incorporate that into the music. You know what I mean? So I've been doing a lot of that lately. And then recently I just caught the bug again. You know, I was like, man, it's time to get back into this music, man. I'm bored. Like, I'm, And then me being attached to all these little, you know, these little young guys that we're bringing up, it just made me want to just come back. But then I was like, but how will I come back? And what would I talk about? You know? Right, <laughs> you know? Right, right, right. Okay, right. you're too rich to be hood and ghetto now. Like, you think it's like, okay. What's the inspiration? <laughs> yeah. You know, even though I want to say it so bad, so I said, okay, maybe I can say it in past tense because they'll be able to relate. Maybe I can school some of these guys, but these kids don't want to learn nothing because you're going to look corny if you preach it right. to them. So how do I do it? I said, you know what? Fuck it. I'm just going to keep the, the beats grimy, go back to what I used to do production-wise, and I just write songs about what I'm dealing with today. And just let that shit, just find a way to make it all incorporate with somehow they'll be able to, un, you know, untap in the direction where they have to understand where I'm at and kind of meet in the middle. Because it'll be a way of actually connecting now with this new generation and talking to them. Because when I see the way the music is going, like in our day, it was different because we never like glorified the struggle or the gangster side of it. Right. These are the things that everybody might have came up with, but this was what we were trying to escape. Because right. we knew we knew where that led. Like you was either dead or locked up for real. It wasn't no joke. The younger generation took it to the next step. Okay, you don't have to run from it. You got to prove you win it. So now all these kids are putting out these records and literally trying to relive the lyrics that's actually in their songs, or literally storytelling 
a life that they actually really lived in these stories, right? But then they utilize it to mock each other in real life, not understanding that this is life is not a video game. If you pull a gun out and you shoot somebody, he ain't coming back. Right. And if you get shot, you ain't coming back. Yeah. Like, it's just not a game. Like, this is real life. So it saddens me to watch a lot of these most, I mean, the most talented young cats. I mean, like, the most, like, talented. And they just either die before it's too early for them to get to the stage of where they're going, or they get locked up and get caught up in some kind of Rico just by trying to prove to the world that they're real and understand that this is more of a vehicle to become better, not a vehicle to highlight the worst in you. You understand what I'm saying? I feel you, for sure. Yeah, man. So I said I got to get back into business. If anything, I can get close to some of these guys, turn them in a direction before it's too late, or if anything, inspire them if, if I don't do nothing else. Well, listen, man, the world needs more Akon. We appreciate you. We thank you. And it's just uh, what, a, what a great story. And again, I can't wait to see this on the big screen because I think people need to understand your journey. And it's really, we're talking 25, 30 years. It's not a long time. All the things that you've been through. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. I mean, and look at the life that you live now and, and the decisions that you're able to make and then be able to go back to Africa and really help people. Like just giving people power. We take all that stuff for granted in America. We're so spoiled, but just giving somebody power that I couldn't imagine never having lights at night other than the moonlight. That's mind blowing to me. But so to give people actual light, that's amazing, man. So thank you. Appreciate you stopping by the Backstory Podcast. We're going, uh, of course, stream all of your current music when it comes out. And man, what a great inspiration, man. We just uh, love talking to you. No, thank you, Kobe. I appreciate you, man. Thanks for thinking about me. For sure. Coming up on the next Backstory Podcast is somebody you may not know, but he has touched you musically. Producer, label executive, and creative Salam Remy. So I got with Clef. I played him the acapella of J. Rules Come Clean and Nas's It Ain't Hard to Tell over the basis of the beef and Nappy Heads. He's like, ooh, okay. So you want to run hard? The rhymes are what? It ain't hard to tell. My first and then Clef comes back. You want the battle swing? I bring. He comes down to the tone of what those records were. He's like, you got to meet the girl in the group. She's really dope. The Backstory Podcast with Kobe Cole is an Urban One Incorporated Reach Media Pod is Good production. Hosted and executive produced by yours truly, Kobe Cole. Edited by Donkus. Follow us on Twitter at BackstoryPCC. On Instagram, get the backstory. Senior Director of Podcast Operations, Sierra Reed. For sales and corporate partnerships, Josh Romani and Michelle Marino. Digital Marketing, Walter Gaynor, J.R. Smith, and Tim Hall. Thanks again for listening to the Backstory Podcast.